Good to see you, uh, especially the uh, 8 o'clock crowd at uh, on Daylight Savings Time. This is a special group. This is the group that will for sure be in heaven. I, I, I just got to say. And I notice there are several empty seats. <laughs> we, won't, we won't make any proclamations about them. Special hug and howdy always to our friends at the Bel Air campus, Edgewood campus, here at the Mountain Road campus. Those joining us online, we're in week two of a series. We kind of preach through series at Mountain where we take kind of whole ideas and work through passages of Scripture together. And uh, this series is called Uphill. Uphill. And it's, it's, um, it's week two and we're working our way uphill, following Jesus as He kind of works through the final days of His life uh, uphill, uh, literally, to the cross itself. And we're following our, our way uphill uh, as well. And it's showing us, it's going to show us um, how to live when our own lives feel uphill, because sometimes they do. I remember a few years ago, uh, we had one of these outdoor baptisms at Mountain. We were going to go up to the river on Route 1. We went up out of town, uh, and, and this farmer gave us this opportunity to come, and we had to uh, b- uh, get to the river through his property, and he had all these cows out there, and so we had to, and it had rained a whole bunch. So this was, this was a, a messy deal. We had to park in all this mud, and they were walking through these cow pies, and all this stuff was on our shoes. We're sliding around. We get to the river, and the river's running real fast. It's real high and deep and muddy, and the banks have been kind of washed out, and we realize we can't hardly get into the river without basically just committing. You're just kind of sliding down this muddy, poop-filled bank into the river, which we did because we were there to do baptisms, and I just remember getting into the river was a whole lot easier than getting out of the river because we did, we got, I remember doing the baptisms, and then we're like, okay, now what are we going to do? So the river's washing, we're all walking over there trying to get, and, and we're trying to keep a dignified spiritual moment. But it's kind of hard when you're grunting and pushing people from behind and get cow crap all over your shoes. I mean, it's a little, not, it was very tough. And I remember after we finally uh, went down the way and got out and, and we were kind of standing around and one of the old ladies that was there, oops, one of the elderly uh, women that was there said, she said, you know, she says, as important as baptism is, today was a fitting example of your life because baptism is the easy part. She says, there's some days we'll feel uphill from here. And she's exactly right. How many of you know that life itself is sometimes just, it feels uphill? It's a trudge. It's not a, you're not, you don't get to coast very often. But instead you have to trudge uphill. And guess what? When you become a Christian, it doesn't sort of all just go away. It doesn't sort of, oh, now life's easy. Now we just sort of blessings and, and sunshine, butterflies and things like that, pleasant smells every day. No, no. It's uphill. And so the question I have for you is, do you have an uphill faith? A faith that keeps climbing. A faith that hangs in. A faith that is strong even when life is hard. And there's no place better to sort of learn what it's like to have an uphill faith than by following Jesus, this one who said, take up your own cross and follow me as he walks through the last few days of his life. The scripture is given an inordinate amount of time and attention to the last few hours and days of Jesus' life. And so that's why we're diving down and spending so much time there, because it'll help us. Now, when you start talking about the final 
few uh, days and hours of Jesus' life. When I say finals, you might think of final exams. You might think of the final four. We're, we're heading into March Madness, right? Everyone's getting their brackets out and, and getting ready to do that. We're talking not about those things. We're talking about the final hours of Jesus' life. And so we started last week in the upper room reminding us that it's so important to have an uphill faith. You've got to have friendships around the table. And next week, we'll, we'll end up at Golgotha, where we've got to learn to lay down our lives in service to others. But this week, we find ourselves in Gethsemane, where we surrender to God. And you'll notice these three follow what we at Mountain talk about as our mountain walk. Love God, love people, serve the world. Today, Gethsemane. We ended last week in the upper room, where it says they sang a hymn. And then after that, after they sang together, they worshipped together for what, to prepare them for what was next. Here's what it's, it, it says that the disciples left the upper room. And Jesus leads them on a walk through the streets of Jerusalem, out a city gate, to a garden called Gethsemane. It's up, if you look at a map, it'd be in the northeast corner of the city. And as they made this walk, just think about what Jesus is thinking about. Because he knows that the coming hours are going to be the biggest uphill journey of his life. Matthew 26. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell about this event in Gethsemane because there were lots of eyewitnesses there. Verse 36, Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. Say that word, Gethsemane. Yeah. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. So he wanted them with him, but he also knew he had some stuff he needed to do with the Father alone. This is at the base of the Mount of Olives, one of Jesus' favorite places to go, to pray. To get there, they would have had to cross over, pass through this area called the Kidron Valley, which was a big ravine through which flowed a channel which led from the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, which collected the blood of some 256,000 lambs that would have been slaughtered during Passover. So you can picture Jesus and His disciples now walking and stepping literally over this ravine, the Kidron Valley, with all the blood there. How could His mind not have gone to the fact that He Himself knew He would be the Lamb of God slaughtered for the sins of the world in a few hours, shedding His own blood? He had seen crucifixions, and now Jesus knows. He's already told them, I'm going to be crucified. They don't seem to get it, but He knew. And they all saw crucifixions all the time. You've never seen one. You've never even seen a real depiction of one in art because all the pictures don't make it look like what it really is. But they all did. They knew the excruciating pain of crucifixion. And this is what's hovering in Jesus' mind. If I put your thumb on a table right up here and I take a big old hammer and I raise it up here and you knew I'm going to come down right on your thumb, how do you feel right now? That's maybe a little bit how Jesus felt. In fact, did you know that our word excruciating actually comes from the word crucifixion? It's the same word, cruciate, from in, the, in the Latin. It's a word, excruciating, this word that we now means the most agonizing, extremely difficult, painful thing you can imagine comes from crucifixion because that's what that was designed for. Crucifixion was the most awful torture ever invented. Persians came up with it in 300 B.C., perfected by the Romans before Jesus' time and in Jesus' time. It's unpleasant for us to think about and look upon it, but I think we have to to sort of grasp what's happening in Gethsemane. So here, here's a painting by, Nicholas, by Nikolai Gay. I, I think it's pretty accurate. 
you, you were pinned in an impossible position with your legs bent at an awkward 45 degree angle. You ever tried to do a wall squat for a long time? Where you just kind of slide down, hold yourself in position? It's very difficult to do. Your legs will become fatigued and begin to cramp. You had to pull yourself up to get a breath. And the process of respiration caused this excruciating pain. Mixed with the absolute terror of asphyxiation, which you could sense was coming as your ribcage kept sliding up. And your wrists and your elbows and your shoulders would slowly begin to dislocate as the pressure on your chest made breathing more difficult. The body would become starved of oxygen and greater amounts of carbon dioxide would enter into your blood because you just couldn't breathe. It would result in tachycardia. Fluctuations in blood pressure and dehydration would lead to lung failure, heart failure. It was the most painful death that they could ever dream up to give someone. Excruciating crucifixion. We can take the picture away because it's what we instinctively want to do is turn away. It does make me, when I look at it, it makes me hate my sin more. It makes me love my Lord more. But that was what Jesus had in mind. He already told him. He knew that's what was coming for him. So it wasn't just the gravity of the, the body's weight on his hands that he was thinking about. It was the sin of the entire world weighing him down on his shoulders, which, alien, which he knew would alienate him from the Father as he had never experienced before in that hour of God-forsakenness so that as the Father would turn away from him who bore our sin so that we wouldn't have to. All of that, like a hammer, is raised over him about to deliver a mighty blow in these final moments as he goes uphill to a place called Gethsemane to pray. Now the word Gethsemane comes from two Hebrew words, Gat Shemanim. Gat means place of crushing. It means a place where things are pressed. And Shemanim refers to the oils that often would come there. So this was the place where olives grew. They would take the olives and crush and press them. It literally means a place of crushing. In the ancient world, they had different machines that they would use to get the oil out of the olives. Here's one, for example, the, they would sort of put the olives in this big sort of stone vat and then that big heavy stone would roll over it and bust them open and then the, the, the oil could come out of the, of the olives. Here's another mechanism you can see that uh, was often used, something like this. A huge heavy stone slab was lowered onto the olives to squeeze out the pulp. You can see there, if you look on the rocks on the left, they're very heavy and they're hanging and they, they put the weight uh, 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 on that center stone as well and then inside there are the olives and then as they're squished um, and pressed and, and crushed the oil then oozes out the bottom they collect it in jars they use it for cooking for for healing for me medicine for for anointing for all kinds of things and these were all over the place there surely would have been one right there in the garden of Gat Shamanim right there where Jesus knelt to pray in that place of crushing and it fits doesn't it because he's being crushed He's feeling the weight. And when we are in a place like that, in an uphill faith, we go to be with God. Verse 37, He took along with Him Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and in anguish He became very sad and extremely distressed. The word there means He's pressed. He told them, my soul is crushed 
with grief to the point of death. You ever feel so distressed you just want to die? You just don't want to keep living? Stay here and keep watch with me. Well, I need you to go through this with me. There's so much here about an uphill faith in this passage. Let's pull out a few things that will help us know how we can hang tough in our own relationship with God in a place of when we're the one who are, who's being crushed. And the first thing that I think is so comforting in all of our struggles of uphill life is, is that Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. That's what I see here first and foremost. That Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. And that's so important because every one of us has asked, does He really know what it's like for me right now? Does He know what it's like to feel what I feel, to struggle the way I'm struggling? Does He know what this pain I'm experiencing is really like? Does He understand anything about the worry, the anxiety, this problem I'm going through, what I'm dealing with is infertility, or this failed adoption, or this divorce, or this abuse, or this miscarriage, or this malignancy, or this anxiety, or this failure, this death, this overdose, does God know we wonder as we suffer in an uphill way and then we follow Jesus to Gethsemane and we see Him, God among us, in excruciating pain and anguish, falling on His face. He didn't get to pull out the God card and wave it around and sort of have some sort of immunity to any sort of difficulty. He had to struggle up the bank with crap and mud just like the rest of us. And that's important to me. It should be important to you that God knows what it's like to suffer. My grandparents had a painting, maybe you've seen it, uh, of, um, that was supposed to depict this moment where Jesus is kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I, I always kind of liked it as a kid looking at it. But now as I think about it, I look back at the, what the writers who were there say actually happened. The painting's all wrong because it shows him so calm and collected and put together. His hair is neatly combed, you know. He's all put together. It looks like his robe just got back from the dry cleaners. You know, some, some photographer fluffed it out for the picture and put a little light on him. He's praying gently. I don't think that's what, what it was like. His face is in the gravel as he's crying out. His hair is matted with sweat to his forehead, snot dangling from his nose as he cried out. Luke 22 says he's in deep anguish. He prayed more earnestly and his and sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So crushed that he was squeezed like an olive that blood was actually coming out. Jesus, friends, this is what it's saying to me. Jesus, we know that Jesus suffered for you. That's so powerful that He suffered for us so that we would never have to experience that God-forsakenness and separation from God because of our sin. But it's not just that He suffered for us. He suffers with us. He experiences the suffering and pain and tasting of anguish that we feel in our lives. He wasn't just zipping through like some sort of charade where He was acting human for a little while. He was fully human and feeling what we feel. So this is a man who entered into our pain because it's the only way He could deliver us from it. And that makes me respect Him and love Him more and know that He loves me more. And that makes a difference when you're struggling uphill. You won't have to suffer one day in heaven because of what He suffered there. And He's with you now in whatever pain you do experience. Hebrews 2.18 says, Since He Himself has gone through suffering and testing, He's able to help us when we're being tested. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, This high priest of ours, Jesus, He understands our weaknesses. 
He's not some aloof, clueless dude. For he faced all the same testings we did, yet without sin. He, he, for, so let us, listen, let us come confidently to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy and will find grace to help us when we need it most. So you see what it's saying? It's saying that when you are going through your worst uphill battle, where do you go? You can approach the One who knows and understands and cares and you will approach that throne of grace confidently because you're going to receive the mercy and strength and help that you need. Friends, there's no pain that you and I experience that's any deeper than the pain Jesus felt when he was in the place of his own crushing. And I love how the Bible says in Luke that God sent him an angel to strengthen him there when he needed it most, and he'll do the same for you. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. To help us further on the uphill faith journey, we can also say that Jesus shows us what it's like to surrender. In Gethsemane, he shows us what it's like to surrender. This is maybe the most important thing we ever learn to do in our lives. It's the key to keeping a faith when life's uphill. Surrender. Verse 39. He went on a little farther and falling on with his face to the ground, he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. I don't want it. Make it go away. Make it stop. I don't want to do this. That's his prayer. But it's not the end of his prayer. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. I want what you want, Father, more than I want what I want. That's the prayer of surrender. Verse 40. Then he returned to the disciples and he found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My Father, if this cup of suffering cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. There's surrender prayer. And when he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. In other words, saying the prayer of surrender, not my will, but yours. And then he came to the disciples and he said, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And that's when Judas and the soldiers arrived. These are words of surrender, not my will, but yours be done. This is what I want, God. But if it doesn't mesh with what you want, I'm going to trust you. Even if I don't get it, even if I don't understand it, even if I don't like it, even if I don't know what you're up to, I trust you enough to say that I want what you want more than what I see that I want. And when you learn to pray that prayer, you have a galvanized faith and trust in God that will help you through any uphill trudge. But without it, you'll be in agony and crushed. Constantly crushed by the hopes and fears and disappointments of life. 
You've died to your own will when you can pray, God, I really want this job. I think it'd be a great fit for me, my gifts, my opportunity to make sport. But, you know, I don't see the future like you do. And you know what's best. I really want to marry this guy, but if he doesn't, if he's not that into me, I'm going to trust that you know what's best. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to help me be content and accept what's going on here. These are prayers of surrender. Leaning on God's will even when we can't understand. I, I, I think about the time where this started. I mean, you think about Mary. I mean, my goodness. Jesus' mother. The angels come, right? And they explain this crazy deal that God's going to do to bring the Messiah, the, you know, the God's son to the planet, right? How did that happen? How did that go down? Do you remember? Angel comes and explains this to this poor peasant girl, Mary. Shocked her, scared her to death, little teenage girl. She's like, What? You're going, to, you're going to bring the Son of God through me? You're going to get me pregnant, but by, by not by a man? And oh my goodness, you know what? But you know what she says? Luke chapter 1, verse 38, here's what she says. Whatever fear, whatever questions, whatever sort of future plans she had, she just all blown up right before her eyes. You know what she says? She says in verse 138, she says, let it happen to me just as you have said. This is a prayer of surrender. It's not what I had planned. This is going to be crazy hard. I, 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 I don't understand a lot of it. But God, I trust you. I'm all in. Let, it un let things unfold in my life however you want them to. This is the prayer of surrender. And so for Jesus, you see, his life of surrender was modeled for him by his mother even before he was born. A bending to the will of God. She was probably afraid. She probably didn't want it. She probably didn't feel like it. But she said yes surrendered and so Jesus when he's in the garden he was afraid he didn't want it he didn't feel like it but he said yes to God's will and he surrendered and if you want to have an uphill faith you will be afraid you will not want it you will you will have all kinds of feelings to the contrary but you know what when you say God not my will but yours be done it gives you a staying power so you are able to then move through the difficult pressing times of your life and surrender comes down to doing it God's way so when you're dating and you're trying to just consider what you want to do and you realize that they may be in opposition to Jesus' sexual ethics, what are you going to do? That's a prayer of surrender moment for you. When you're trying to figure out how generous you're going to be with, with, with God's money, will you go all the way? Will you follow Jesus all the way with that or, or not? When you're really angry at someone, you want to get back at them, when you want to gossip about someone, when you've got a porn habit, when you've got an addiction thing, and you realize that clinging to that is going to keep you from going where Jesus wants you to go. All of these things give us opportunity to express a surrender that you see in Jesus at Gethsemane. We're often in life pressed from two sides, aren't we? where we just can't choose both things or we're being cr crushed in between. I really, 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 really want to lose weight, but I really, 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 really like Oreos and pizza. We're pressed from two sides. Simple as that. It's like the guy who really liked dating all kinds of girls at one time and someone finally said, you know what, you can't have your Kate and Edith too. A guy had a girlfriend named Ruth. He really, really liked her. But Ruth was kind of demanding, a little controlling, kind of possessive and jealous. But he really liked her. In fact, when he got his dream car, a Chevy convertible, he was driving around with her on a sunny day and they were enjoying it. But she leaned over as they were driving along. She says, you know, darling, it's me or the car. He looked at Ruth and he just couldn't figure out what to do. But then it came to him all of a sudden. And he accelerated and took a sharp left turn and drove away ruthlessly <laughs> you 
I think that's what Jesus says it's like. For us, sometimes we've got to choose between two things that you may love or feel a draw toward, two things that compete with leading in your life. And you've got to make that turn. You've got to pull away and drive away ruthlessly sometimes. This is what every person who struggles with addiction understands. You know what the choice is. Jesus came to those first disciples on the Sea of Galilee. He said, follow me. Follow me. And they were fishermen. They were holding their nets. And the, and the Bible says that when they followed him, they dropped their nets to follow him because they knew that they couldn't just sort of keep their nets and follow Jesus. It doesn't work that way. They had to drop their nets. You can hold on to your nets and keep on fishing, or you can go follow Jesus, but you can't do both. They knew that. It wasn't an option to say, well, Jesus, we want to keep fishing. Why don't you follow us? Hop, in fact, why don't you hop on with what I want to do, where I want to go, what, I want, what I'm already doing, and you know, be nice to have a little spiritual friend around sometimes. I'll just keep living the way I want to live and fish, and you just come with me. Jesus didn't offer that. Nor did he say, well, come on, bring your nets, let's go. Okay, we'll lug these stinking 75-pound you know, gut fish, rotten, smelly nets with us all the way. No, he didn't offer that. Drop your nets and follow. And there, there's probably a net that you have that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to drop. That's what surrender feels like. Something that you're familiar with, that you, that you love, that you are, are attached to because Jesus is requiring 100% devotion and allegiance. When you're pressed between two things and you realize that you can't choose both and one of them is Jesus, that's a question of lordship. Everybody say the word lordship. We want Je Jesus is Savior and Lord. And we want Him as our Savior. He's the one who brings blessing and rescues us from our sin. But if Jesus is our Savior, that means He's our Lord. Savior means He gives His life for you. Lord means you give your life for Him. And it's always a package deal. Savior means you accept His salvation, His love, His grace, His forgiveness. And Lord means you accept His authority, His rule, His kingship, and submit to Him daily. And the two are always connected. If Jesus is your Savior, Jesus is your Lord. You want His forgiveness, His blessing, His heaven? As Savior, then He's your Master. Savior means He rescues and forgives me. Lord means He's the boss of me. And that's why we need to surrender. I remember my grandfather was a devout follower of Jesus. And I was so offended one day it's a hard thing to explain, so I won't try. I'll just say there was a man who did some things that hurt me and our family. And uh, we took it personally, and it was very difficult for all of us. I was so frustrated and angry. I knew if I went to my father, I could vent a little, and I was upset. I knew he feel, felt the same way I did. And I went, and I griped, and I grumbled, and I can't believe he did that, and why is he doing that? And I wanted to go on for a while like that. I noticed after a while that my grandfather didn't, hadn't said anything yet. <laughs> so I waited. And he just looked up and he said, well, Jesus says we need to forgive him. And that settled it for him. And that's what we did. What I learned that day was not just about forgiveness. I learned about lordship. Because it isn't what my grandfather wanted to do. But it wasn't his call. He was a follower of Jesus. 
And Jesus was not only his Savior, but it was his Lord. What battle are you fighting with Jesus right now? Where are you trying to figure out who's going to be in the driver's seat in your life? Where do you need to surrender? Where do you need to surrender? Is there something in your friendships or your marriage? Something about a child that you're overwhelmed and concerned with and you're trying to steer and control? Or a lifestyle choice you have or a money issue for you? That you need to surrender? Some habit or temptation that you're clinging to, trying to fight on your own? Some character thing? Surrender. At the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus showing us what it looks like to surrender. Not my will, but yours be done. In Gethsemane, Jesus also teaches us how to pray. He teaches us how to pray. And I want to, I want to say some things about this because when you're hiking uphill, you know, and you've got a backpack on, you're hiking up and your legs are burning, your lungs are, are heaving, you want to just stop and rest and get refreshed so you can keep going. And this is what prayer is for us. It's what I think prayer was for Jesus. Let me say some things that we can learn from Jesus uh, in Gethsemane about prayer. It'll help you and me in our own prayer lives, okay? First, what we see from Jesus is that you, we need to pray daily. Pray daily. There's an ongoing, everyday relationship with God that you see from Jesus. Pray every day as a part of life. Gene Apple says, crisis prayers are most effective when they're preceded by daily prayers. Okay, when we get to that heated moment, uphill crush moment, it's like, oh, now we're crying out. Well, that, that's going to be a more effective experience if it's preceded by an ongoing everyday relationship with God that's born out in prayer. And Jesus had cultivated that. Matthew 14 says he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. These are things that his disciples are observing. Mark 1 says very early in the morning, it was still dark. Jesus gets up, he leaves the house, and he goes off to a solitary place. What does he do there? He prays. Luke 5 says, Jesus often withdrew to, lonely, to a quiet, lonely place and prayed. Luke 6 says, one of those days Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray. And he spent all night praying. So Gethsemane was apparently one of the places that Jesus loved to go most often. How do we know that? Look at Luke 22, 39. It says, Jesus went out, what's the next words? As usual. As usual. To the Mount of Olives to pray. Where's your as usual place when you go be with God? Where's your as usual place? When is your as usual time? Here's a picture of the Garden of Gethsemane today. I've been there and maybe we'll take a group of us sometime from Mountain. Well, I love going there because when we get there we can just say, hey, here's the Garden. This is where Jesus prayed his prayer of his greatest need that he had. You can just spread out now in the garden before we get back on the bus and let's just take some time to pray about our greatest need before the Father. It's very moving. But I'll tell you, you don't have to go to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the Garden of Gethsemane to do that. Every day, in your usual place, find what that usual place is. Where is that? Is that a spot on your patio? Is it... You know, your back porch, is it, is it an upper room in your home? Is it your office door that goes closed? Is it in your car over to the lunch hour? What is it? Can I just say, let's pray. Could we just pray daily between now and Easter? Every one of us, it's about 15 days between now and Easter. Pray every day. Where will you be? When will you be there? And maybe you'll say, I don't know what to pray. Maybe if you're in a beginning prayer, let me just say, you could just pray Jesus' prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. God, what do you want me to do today? 
What do you have for me today? What are you saying to me and what do you want me to do about it? Just ask, Lord, what do you want? That's the prayer of surrender every day. Jesus prayed daily. The other thing we see here is that Jesus prayed deeply. Any relationship you have, if all you ever do is talk about the weather sports and the latest episode of Walking Dead, it's not a very deep relationship. But when you can talk about things that matter most to you, then you've got a relationship that's going someplace. And this is how it is in prayer. Jesus here is praying about what matters most to Him. It's deep, isn't it? He's crying out in anguish. He's sweating drops of blood. His prayers are so passionate they got bloody. This is how we're invited to pray about what matters most to us. What matters most to you? Well, I can tell you what some of those things are. Your relationships, your money, the things that keep you up at night, your fears, your insecurities, the things you don't talk to anyone else about. Talk with God about these things and you will pray deeply and you will be fortified through your tough uphill struggles. Listen, even if prayer doesn't change the circumstances, it'll change you. You say, well, how can I be guaranteed that if I pray it's going to make any difference? It'll make a difference. It may not change the circumstance. It might, but it will certainly change you. So pray deeply. Pray daily, pray deeply. And third, we see Jesus teach us to pray to Daddy. Pray to Daddy. This is something, if you look over in the Gospel of Mark, in his explanation of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus use a term that is never before this time applied to God the Father. And if you've been around mountain, you're familiar with this term. It's the word Abba. Look at Mark 14. It says this, as Jesus, Abba, Father, it's the Aramaic word that means Papa, Daddy. Daddy, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. When, the, uh, Friday night we had the daddy-daughter dance here at Mountain. And this room here at Mountain Road was filled with daddies and their little adorable daughters looking up at, at, in, their, in their stargazed eyes at their daddies. And lots of great pictures on social media about the tenderness of a daddy moment. And this is the same language that Jesus is evoking here when he says, on the one hand, notice the language there. It says, Abba, everything is possible for you. In other words, he's praying to the Father who's the strong, omnipotent, nothing is impossible. God, you can, you can do anything. And there's a part of us that needs to pray that. We, we need to stop telling uh, God how big our problems are and start telling our problems how big God is. But then he turns right around after saying, nothing's impossible for you, and, and he says, but you're also Abba. Because sometimes what you need is a God who holds the whole world in his hands, but sometimes you just need a daddy who holds you. Daddy, just hold me. Just help me. And you can pray that prayer. And the Son of God did. And I think that was key to his uphill battle, and it's probably the key to yours. So if you've got something with God that prevents you from loving Him like a daddy, you need to surrender that too. Let me just share one more thing about prayer. As we learn to, from Jesus to pray daily and to pray deeply and to pray to our daddy, we need to pray for those who don't yet know Jesus. I find it astounding that in Jesus' worst moment of being crushed, He's thinking of others. John 17 tells us that this same night, Jesus prayed for those who would not yet believe. And He prayed for you. He prayed for me. He prayed for us. He prayed for those who would not yet believe. And then catch this. Judas shows up at the Garden of Gethsemane. 
with a bunch of armed soldiers with him. And he had had, he had, remember he sold himself out, 30 pieces of silver to, to, to lead him right to Jesus. And he knew where Jesus would be. Jesus always hung out and prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane. So he knew where he'd be. And they had a prearranged signal. Hey, which one's Jesus? How do we know which guy to get? And he says, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll go kiss him. That was the clue. So he marches right up to Jesus and says, hey, greetings, Rabbi. And he kisses him on the cheek, betrayed by a kiss. If you've ever had someone knife you in the back like that, someone you trusted betray you, sell you out like that, you know, you know it hurts. And what's your instinctive reaction in those moments when you know what's going on, when you finally figure it out? What do you want to do? You want to fight back. You want to punch back. You want to do something to retaliate. This is what's so amazing to me is that Jesus, in Matthew 26, verse 50, says to Judas, he says, do what you came for, friend. friend. Have you ever noticed that word, friend, in there he still calls Judas his betrayer a friend still reaching out to Judas because Jesus is the ultimate friend of sinners even those who betray him and stab him back and let him down because Jesus never gave up on anybody now Judas gave up on him but Jesus never gave up on Judas he never saw anybody as a lost cause and that's important because it reminds us that you are not a lost cause. I'm not a lost cause. Because, friends, let's face it, I'm Judas. You're Judas. We publicly kiss Jesus sometimes, and then other times we pretend he's not even there. We ignore him and betray him, walk away from him, and Jesus says, you're still my friend. Because Jesus never saw anyone as a lost cause, and that means that neither should we, which is why I think as we're praying, we should learn that nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace and even in Jesus' worst moment of crushing, as he's getting ready to go to the grave, he's thinking about those who are far from him. And that's why when we pray, we need to pray for those people. For people who, for people who don't know Jesus, who are not experiencing the love of Jesus. At Mountain, that's what we're all about. We're the body of Christ mobilized on an all-out, high-stakes, life-or-death, heaven-or-hell, search-and-rescue mission for anyone who's far from God. And so, if you're a disciple of Jesus in this community, please pray, not just for your own self in crushing moments, but pray like Jesus did for those who are yet to believe. And I just started wondering, what would it look like if all of us this week and next would pray and serve and care, especially with more intentionality for anyone that we know who is far from God? Who you invite on Easter with an earnest prayer that they will come to know the love of Jesus and what He's done on the cross? What friend comes to mind? What friend can you be praying for between now and Easter that they will come to believe, that they will come with you and experience? Take an invite card. Use the social media stuff on Facebook. Whatever you need to do. Who will you pray for that they will come to believe? Let me offer prayer now for you and for them and for all of our surrender. Let's pray. Gracious God, we're so thankful that you went to Gethsemane and that uphill struggle. And we, we take such strength from watching and learning, knowing that you're with us in our own uphill struggle that you know what it's like to suffer, that you show what it's like to surrender, and that you teach us how to pray deeply into our daddy and for those who don't know you. And we want to pray specifically 
and boldly that you would move in the hearts of people that they would experience surrender. That they would experience the, the, the draw as we lift up Jesus, especially in Easter coming up in just a couple of weeks. Go before us, Lord. Open doors. Create receptive hearts. Move among us. And then help us, Lord, to model what you want to see in us through our own surrender. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.